Welcome to the Standard Age Podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. I can't thank you enough for listening as these episodes have been a wonderful supplement to the line of apparel that I'm thrilled to share is steadily growing. If you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. The website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will be the first to receive product release information as well as receive offers no one else is privy to. Just visit standard-h.com for more information. Seeing Standard H worn by a growing number of watch enthusiasts has been incredibly cool to witness, so chances are good if you're listening to this, you're probably an enthusiast already. However, if not, it makes no difference as Passion Fine Jewelry welcomes everyone into their shop in Solana Beach, California. If you're already in deep, you'll know some of the brands that Tim Jackson and his team carry, which are some of the most highly sought-after independent watch manufacturers sold today. Names like Roger Smith, Grunfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as the Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at contonement.co, that's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T.co, and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. Like many of you, I'm sure, William Messina first came up on my radar from his 2015 episode on Hodinkee's Talking Watches. Hard to believe that's already been nearly eight years ago, and I actually didn't meet William in person until this past October when he walked past the Standard H booth at Windup in New York City. I politely introduced myself, told him I enjoyed his episode, and then we proceeded to talk about our shared love of the same sunglass company, Jacques-Marie Mage. It's very much a cult brand, so anytime someone wearing them gets called out, it inevitably solicits a smile and a surprised response, not unlike spotting a rare watch, for example. This episode follows a podcast first, where William accidentally slept through our initial podcast Zoom recording. I found this to be quite hilarious, and he was clearly jet-lagged, so I kept that part of the discussion in the mix. William, please don't be embarrassed. It was too funny to leave out. Needless to say, William and I have a really fun conversation. I certainly learned a ton about his background and path into watches, and he does a great job offering advice on leaning into the idea of acquiring your grails. Anyway, let's get into it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Good, good. Sorry, I was uh, Sorry just... about last time. <laughs> I, I, so I went home. My wife and kids were away. Uh, I had just come from London two days before. I fell asleep on the sofa. I basically was like, oh, yeah, I have West in an hour. I'm going to read. I started reading. I fell asleep. I woke up four hours later. I am, I am like, I never do this. I feel really bad about it. It's, it's not an issue whatsoever, honestly. Like, I've, I've kind of, um, 
recording these podcasts has sort of led me to seeing and hearing it all, so to speak. Okay. It's like the excuses to the school teacher, you know, my dog ate my homework. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I get it. And, um, no, I appreciate you taking the time regardless and, and making it easy to reschedule and stuff. It's, it's been fine. Yeah, I've, my head's been down. My wife and I are about to move house. So like I've, okay, I'm in the middle of the throes of packing and prepping and, you know, and I'm actually, we gut renovated our house that we're moving into. So, I mean, it's a full-time job. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. This is like a, a, it's a three years affair moving, you know? Right. I feel <laughs> exactly. like you, you pack, you unpack and you're always like finding an excuse not to do it or you're too busy doing it. Right. And uh, at the end of the day, it takes three years to, to get your bearings, basically. Right. For the dust to settle, so to speak. So yeah. Yeah. No matter how many times you, you clean it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so where are you now? Are you in your offices? Uh, yeah. I'm in a conference room in my office. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, where are you based? Like where? where I'm in New York City. So um, Broadway and Fulton, which is a financial district. Yeah, cool. So I'm about two blocks north of Wall Street, just to give you an idea, on Broadway. Sure. Um, it's kind of quiet and nice and cheap rent, basically. Really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. You think FIDI, you don't think of cheap. <laughs> FIDI in New York, I mean, in Manhattan, since COVID is cheap. Right. Because a lot of the companies moved uh, uptown in Midtown. And a lot of the companies, a lot of people did not return, so they closed their offices. Wow. Uh, but the big banks, uh, you know, Goldman, all those guys, uh, and Silicon Bank, AIG, they, a lot of them moved uh, the town. Hmm. Interesting. Because a lot of their employees say, hey, you know, okay, I'm going to come back to the office uh, three days a week, but I don't want to take the subway to go downtown. I want to be close to the train, right. you know, to... Uh, to the train stations, so a lot of them have moved. Wow. So you have a lot of empty uh, offices in, in Philly. You have, um, I think the occupancy rate is about 60%. Wow. Low, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's like half empty almost, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's crazy. Well, I know you grew up in Switzerland. Remind me, what city? Geneva. Okay, you are from Geneva, I thought so. For, for some reason in my brain, I was thinking Lausanne or something. Yeah, I, I was, well, between Geneva and Lausanne, actually, it's a good point. You know, I went to school. It wasn't in the city proper, but, uh, you know, the big city in, around me, which was about a 20-minute ride, was Geneva. So, right. uh, but it was between Geneva. I, I went to different schools between Geneva and Lausanne, basically. But, you know, Lausanne is a much smaller city. Lausanne population is like 60,000, I think. Right. Uh, Geneva is 300 now, I think, or 350. Right. Um, so yeah, that's where I grew up. But I'm not, I, I, I wasn't born there, but I grew up there, yeah. Where were you born? I was born in the south of France. Oh, okay. What town? In Nice. Oh, in Nice. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I had a beautiful bottle of Cronenberg 1664 on the beach in Nice, and I will never forget oh, that yeah. beer. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not the best beer in the world, but it was certainly tasty that day. It was delicious. That's funny. And, but the beach has the, the stones, right? The pebbles. It's not the yeah. best beach in the... In yeah, I was... I I guess technically I wasn't on the beach, but I was, you know, kind of at one of the, the tables with the umbrella, you know, outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. I, um, 
I went to Europe after college by myself and just traveled around Europe. And, um, and I just, I, that memory will stick into my brain forever. You enjoyed it? How long did you do this? This, uh, around two months, like just shy of two months. That's nice. Um, because it was also piggybacking on, uh, I went on a big cruise with my whole family, like my grandparents, my aunt, my uncle, my cousins, my parents, like every, all of us went on a Mediterranean cruise and then they all flew back to the States and I stayed on with a backpack and traveled around because I had a lot of European friends and between hostels and their house was great. So one of my best friends in the whole world who now lives in Japan was living, he grew up in Avion, France, like right on Lake Geneva. Oh yeah? Yeah, so, but he was born in Lausanne actually. So um, oh. so I, I know that area only from just kind of visiting short term, but... Um, so wh wh where are you from? You're from California originally? No, I actually grew up in North Carolina. Okay. Which is very different. <laughs> I've been there a few times. Yeah, very. What took you to North Carolina? Um, you know, for a while, my wife and I would go all the way to um, the beach in um, oh, where Kitty Hawk is. Um, oh, yeah, in the Outer Banks. In the Outer Banks. We used to go to the Outer Banks every year. Uh, before COVID, um, because my wife had fans that she grew up with. My wife grew up, my wife is English, but she grew up in, in Washington. And friends of her have a house there. So we used to visit them every year oh, sure. uh, before COVID and before babies and all this stuff. So right. I used to drive down there. I used to do the drive New York uh, uh, all the way to the Outer Banks. And it was, wow. oh, it was fun, actually. Yeah. It's about eight what? hours, eight and a half hours. So here's something funny. I grew up in Raleigh which I think is about four and a half hours from the Outer Banks because you got to go up. I've never been to the Outer Banks, not once. Ah, oh, it's a great place. <laughs> I know. Everybody says so. I, you know, I love going there, having crabs. And, you know, it's very laid back. It's yeah. like, for me, I, I was born on the French Riviera, you know, which is this nerdy, and I'm, I'm really not into this. And I really like laid back beaches, and that's exactly what I like about the Outer Banks. You know, it's super yeah. laid back. There's nothing, you know, it's wild in the sense that there's nothing, you know, you can walk on the beach, there's nothing there. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoy it. And Kitty Hawk is kind of cool to visit. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. My parents, my parents almost moved to a town called Duck. I'm sure you've driven through it, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I've stayed. I've stayed in Duck. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly where the house is. Yeah. Duck. Well, yeah, yeah. There's a great hotel there, actually, also. Yeah, I've never been. My parents have been several times and I've never been. <laughs> you, you have to go, Wes. You yeah. have to go. It's really nice. Yeah, it's yeah. worth a trip, you know, with the family and you take the kids to Kitty Hawk one afternoon. And yeah, it's fun. That's great. Well, what were you attracted to like scholastically when you were a kid? Like what's like what what subjects were you into? Were you like into math? History. Science? History. Okay. History. Yeah, I was a huge history buff. Um I was actually a Napoleon buff. I um, I nearly um, uh, did a PhD in the U.S. Uh, about Napoleon. Um, there's a, a university, I think it's University of Tampa, has a, a department in there for a master's or PhD degree about Napoleon, a revolution in Napoleonic studies. And uh, I, I nearly, nearly, nearly went there to, uh, to do a PhD, you know. That's fascinating. Yeah, but my sister is a history uh, professor. I mean, was actually. Um, she has a PhD in history, and uh, she went to um, she went to Harvard to do it. And um, 
Harvard is it? No, I, I think she got a PhD. She went to Harvard for something, but it's not a PhD. But okay. maybe uh, Columbia University. Anyway, that doesn't matter. But she uh, studied um, she studied uh, the Second World War, and um, and uh, I didn't want to be an academic like her. When I saw her life, I was like, nah, this is not for me. Oh no, that's so funny. Well, yeah. So I study I study business. Okay. Yeah, I was um, I was a, a finance major. I actually studied math. You know, in in Europe, you you study. Uh, your major in in high school. So I was a math major in high school, and then uh, I studied um, finance at NYU. Got it. Got it. I almost transferred to NYU. Oh yeah, I transferred to NYU. I was at Columbia University first, and oh. I transferred to NYU because NYU had a program where you could do your uh, BBA and MBA in four years instead of six, and you didn't have to. If you kept a certain uh, average, you had to have like three point eight be on the dean list and the whole thing. So I tried that, and uh, that's what I did. Oh, that's amazing! Uh, it was it was a great pilot program that NYU was offering uh, in the late eighties. So I took advantage of it. it. Saved me a lot of money too. Well, oh yeah, for sure. You know, missing two more years of that tuition, I'm sure. Yeah. Wait, you were in college in the late eighties? Uh, yeah, because um, I I graduated from high school in eighty seven. Wow. And uh, yeah, I'm old. Yeah, you look good. Yeah, I was just say you look young. Nice. Um, so I graduated from college. I was born in '69. I graduated from high school in '87. Then I um, I went and I traveled like you did for a year. Uh, and then in '88, I got into Columbia University, and in '89, I transferred to NYU. And then I graduated. I got my MBA in '93, uh, I think '92, '93. Oh God! Are we are we recording this? We're this we're rolling, baby. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, I didn't realize you were recording. I was like, ah, oh, this is like a little chit chat. We're not talking watchers yet. Yeah. Well, no. This is this is kind of what these things are about. They're about people and their watches and cars and it's. It, but it's mainly just about people. So I'm kind of interested to see. You know, like what was your first job when you got to the states? Then. Um. So it's interesting because, um, so I came here and I was a foreign student, you know, and foreign student, what we do is when you graduate, um, they give you a visa for one year where you can work. Right. So the idea here is you have to rush to find a job where they're going to sponsor you for the green card. Uh, that's basically the goal. Um, so my first, first job, because I needed I needed to have a job right away. And I, when I graduated, I think it was uh, in 93, um, with my MBA, there was no job basically. Uh, and to, to get a training job at a bank, it was an old, there were a couple of windows, a couple of banks I want to go, and I didn't make it. So I, my first job, I worked for a shipping company, oh. and I was uh, I was doing marketing for them. I was uh, buying advertising in uh, shipping companies' magazines, believe it or not, uh, for oh, containers wow. and stuff like that. Yeah, but I did this very shortly for three months, and then I got accepted. Um, in the training program at a bank called Credit Agricole, which is a big French bank in Midtown. Um, and I ended up in the uh, training room there. I first worked in the risk department and and then I ended up being a trader. So I was a trader for a few years there. Oh, wow. um, and then I worked for another bank doing the same stuff, a Swiss bank. Uh, and then I quit. I, I ran, what happened is one day uh, I went home and I ran into one of my old professors from NYU, um, 
And he uh, asked me what I was doing, and I told him, I said, oh, I'm very surprised you're doing this. Uh, I thought you'd be doing, you know, something completely different. I thought you'd be, you know, running your own business. So I was kind of like a bit mm. flustered. You know, I was like, shit, you know, I thought I thought I was doing pretty well for myself. And, it's, <laughs> and here's this old professor that I really respect who told, tells me, yeah, I thought you'd be an entrepreneur or you do a different thing. So um start thinking about it. And... Uh, and I started calling a few friends that were doing other things. And a friend of mine told me that um, there were guys in, in the south of the U.S., in uh, Georgia, that were looking for uh, a partner to help them raise money to do real estate deals in Georgia and Alabama. So I had nothing to lose. And uh, I called them up and we hit it up. And they were looking for somebody to basically go to bank um, and and raise money and be the you know the finance guy in the company like kind of a CFO deal, and I told them I said look I have this idea why don't we take the um, you, you pitch that you want to give the bank and we pitch it to rich guys in Europe and uh, Swiss banks and you know rich um, family offices and stuff like that so I thought that was a good idea and we basically became partner and. We were um, building shopping malls, uh, strip malls, uh, all over Georgia. So this happened uh, right after the Olympics in '96. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we were doing already. We were kind of looking at the Olympics, and uh, we're buying land, and then um, it was zone commercial, and we built, you know, kind of a little box. Like there would be a Wendy's and there would be, you know, two anchor tenants at Eckerd and you know, which is kind of a, a wall green. Yeah, no, I know Eckerd's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We fill it. Oh yeah, of course you know Eckerd's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and we we fill them up with um with a uh, local tenants, a hairdresser, a barber, you know, nail polish store, whatever. Right. And then we were selling them to REITs, um, real estate investment trust. So I did this um, with those guys, and I was raising the money. They were buying land. One was in the construction side, the other one was in the contract. So there was a lawyer, a builder, and me. And I was a finance guy. We had a lawyer that was doing all the legal stuff and trying to get the zoning right and all this stuff. And then we had the builder that was doing all the construction. And so I lived between New York. I still kept my apartment in New York because I had just gotten married. And I lived between New York and uh, Atlanta, and I was doing this stuff all over the South, and which was great because, you know, French-Swiss guy in the South was kind of like, not a lot of people were, you know, the accents, a lot of people couldn't understand a word I was saying. <laughs> and um, uh, I did this for, until about after after 9-11. After 9-11, I was like, when 9-11 happened, I was like, ah, I want to do something I really want to do. And uh, this is when I started to seriously think about getting into the watches because I was already collecting watches. I had been collecting watches for my first paycheck, basically. So I was really getting into collecting. I was very involved with time zone at the time. And I want to do my own thing. So that's when I, I told my partners that I want to sell my shares. So I sold my shares of the business to my partners and, and I started doing different things in the watch world. I was still dabbling, you know, doing some real estate left and right, but I was really focused on doing something in the watch world. Oh, that's amazing and wow what a what an interesting path because while you're telling while you're telling the story I'm like all right you live in New York public transportation I'm a car guy and Atlanta has horrible traffic so what were you driving in Atlanta <laughs> <laughs> a rental oh you rented okay 
Yeah, I, I had uh, I didn't want to buy a car. Um, I had uh, what did I buy? Oh, shit, that hurts was renting basically. Yeah, I would get upgraded to I would get upgraded to one of those. Uh, I would get a Taurus and get upgraded to something else. You know, the Chevy Malibu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I, I, I've never been a car guy. I was never the right. thing that uh, that I really cared about. Um, I had a car in Africa. I had a Lada in Africa. Oh, cool. I don't know if you know what a Lada Niva is, a 4x4 SUV Lada. Yeah. It's a Russian car. Yeah. Um, so I had that. That was made for, um, that was my first car. It was made for the um, Egyptian market. It had, uh, it was a beige. I paid like, uh, I think, uh, 175 bucks for it. Oh, my god! It had maybe 150,000 kilometers on it. So I had that. Um, but after that, I didn't have a car until... Uh, I had a store in Miami and I had a car there. Um, so basically, Atlanta had nothing. I was renting. Right. And when I sold uh, my shares, I, I bought a store in Miami um, that a friend of mine had. And uh, it was a watch store and I, and I bought it from him. So I was commuting now. Instead of doing New York, Atlanta, I was doing New York, Miami. And I had a store there called um, Holden, out of Holden Coalfield from uh, Catcher and the Rye. And I had, um, uh, I don't know, I was writing Bell & Ross, kind of like, at the time, three to $5,000 watches. Sure. A Technomarine for people who... Oh, yeah. And, um, and, I, and so I started, I was renting cars. And one day, this guy shows up. And uh, he tells me that he has... Um, uh, what, what what car was it? You know, one of those nineteen eighties awful Jaguars, like you know those Jags from the eighties that yeah. went Ford on Jag. Yeah, so he had one of those cars. So he had ton of electrical problems. <laughs> <laughs> so he told me, I don't want to buy a watch that we had. So I had a little corner, and we had used watches, you know, and some of them were expensive. I had maybe, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't remember what I traded. I think I traded him a. A tech, like a fifteen thousand dollar patek or twenty grand patek, wow. and he saw this patek and was like, "Oh, you want to trade?" Because he knew I wasn't. Um, I was actually I was thinking about getting a car, and he was like, "I trade you my Jag for the car, for the watch." And I was like, "Okay, let's do this." So I traded my my watch, the watch I had at the store for the Jag, and that Jag was such a headache. I think <laughs> I think I kept it three or four months, and I think I think I drove it twice. It, it never it never worked. Oh wow! This was the time when I think Ford on Jag in the yeah. time, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. And oh, that was that was such a POS that car. <laughs> I sold that right away, and um, and then my friend um, Pierre Pierre Halimi, uh, who uh, if people know, he's the, the president of Jean in the U.S. He's the U.S. president of Jean. He's a very old and dear friend of mine. Um, said oh you can borrow one of my cars so i would drive one of his cars and he's he's a car guy so uh, you know it would be uh i don't know an amg this or porsche that and he would let me drive the car so yeah i stopped renting and i started driving his cars which was kind of fun you were early into to fp jorn i know you were early into a long and zona i obviously i got to know you through your talking watches episode like that's what that's how you became on my radar just for following Hodinkee. And, and I was writing a blog way back in the day and stuff too. Um, I am curious though, since you mentioned it, 
you said you were into watches even with your first paycheck when you were doing the shopping center thing or the real estate deals. No, that was before. That was when I was a banker, actually. My oh, okay. What was what was the first watch you bought? Um, so the first watch I bought with my first paycheck was um, actually when I was doing the shipping business. Um, okay. I got um, my second month. So people have to take into you have to take into context that back then I remember how much I paid, so that's easy. Uh, I bought a seed weather. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, at uh, twenty five off retail. Wow. Um, because I got the VAT refund and I got a five percent uh, discount from a store in Paris. Um, and I paid, I think, $2,200 for it. So I think the retail back then was maybe $2,700 or $2,800. I mean, for the sure. uh, You have to realize uh, a Daytona, which I bought a year, a year later, was, I think the Daytona was $3,500. So, yeah. I mean, you have to keep that into, uh, this is 30 years ago, exactly 30 years ago. So um, I bought that seed water. That was the first watch I bought. Then, um, uh, then I didn't buy anything for a while because I had to save money and I wanted to buy an apartment. I was really into uh, the early nineties. Real estate in New York was really bad, and I really thought that I should buy an apartment, uh, which I did, which was really a smart move on my part. I have to admit, one of the few times where I did something right besides buying a watch. <laughs> and um, so I didn't buy a watch. I bought an apartment. I bought an apartment, um, and. Uh, and that was in uh, in ninety three, and then after that, a year later, with my bonus, I bought um, I bought uh, an Alpine Retem that I still have. I don't know if you're familiar with that watch. The Retem was the only one of the Trinity, meaning Patek, or uh, Alpine, and Vacheron Constantin, was the only one I had a chronograph, uh, playing chronograph. So I bought this. Um, I can tell you, I even also remember how much I paid. Um, retail was like 12 G's, and I think I paid 8,500 wow. uh, at the time. So I bought this with the deployment buckle. It was like a whole story. The deployment buckle never worked properly, I had issues. And yeah, that was the first two watches I bought within a span of a year, right. which was a big deal for me because that was like, you know, 15,000. Not ten thousand dollars, and you know when you're starting, even ten years ago, ten thousand dollars was a lot of money. Uh, right. I had a mortgage, and you know yeah. I had a mortgage at the time, and all this stuff. You know, it's uh, but yeah, I bought those. Uh, two, these are the first two watches I bought. Yeah, I'm curious, and I may edit this out, but I'm dying to know what your apartment cost in the nineties. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I remember the price of the watches I bought. The apartment I, was it was very big. I remember that it was very big. I didn't keep it for very long. I flipped the apartment, actually. Okay. The apartment, I, you know, it's funny. I sold the apartment to um, the tennis player's parents. I won't say whom because, you know, for but a right. famous tennis player, his parents liked my apartment and they bought it, which was really weird. So me growing up, I was in tennis. I like tennis. Um and Formula One. That was my two things. Oh. Tennis, Formula One. Uh, yeah. I I wasn't. I, I liked soccer, and I knew a little bit about soccer because soccer was all around me, and I would watch it. But um, it was I was really a big Formula One fan and a big uh, 
at tennis time. When I came to America, I was shocked that nobody knew about Formula One in the U.S., well, until like five years ago, actually. Right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I actually grew okay, so I'm from North Carolina, as I said. So I'm in NASCAR country and I hated NASCAR. I always liked Formula One. So right. and I always used to joke I like cars that can actually take a right turn every now and again. <laughs> and so <laughs> the uh the thing that I was gonna ask you though is well, who is your driver as a Swiss child? You know, like who do you who did you follow? Um I really like Alan Post. Oh, okay. Yeah, French, yeah. French guy, but he lived in Switzerland. You know, yeah. Alain Prost lived, uh, actually his house was not far away from where I was going to school. Oh, so cool. uh, I think I saw him once, actually. Um, I really liked, of course, Ayrton Senna. You know, Senna was a, a god to everybody. Yeah. And I like Nelson Pickett. I like Kiki Rosenberg. I don't know if those names uh, yeah, yeah. rings a bell to you, but I like those guys. You know, there was kind of like the charm of the... Um, uh, the 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 Ohio dates, you know, like yeah, Nikki Loda, all those guys that were like they were, they had personality, they were cool, they were really cool, smoking cigarettes, walking down with beautiful women. Um, yeah, I was very much into those guys. And then when Senna and Frost had that rivalry, I really liked it. I kind of liked the it's like the Borg McEnroe, you know, they right. they were playing those guys against each other, like uh, like boxing games, uh, and I kind of liked that. I think that. We like this today a bit with um with um Drivers. with sports in general, you know. Yeah. 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 Everybody's a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Now the the, the Borg and McEnroe were friends, but you know, they they look at enemies and it, it was great. It was a lot of showmanship that I really enjoyed, yeah. Yeah. I feel like the closest thing to that maybe would have been like Daniel Ricardo and Max when they raced for Red Bull, just because like you know, off track, they were probably friends, but like, man, they went at each other on track. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's interesting. That's super cool. So, do you still follow F one or no? Not so much. Um, I mean, I, enjoy, I like Max. Yeah. Uh, if I if I root for somebody, it's Max. Uh, I, I I watch it if I run into it. You know, if I'm clipping the channels and it's there, I will watch it. But I kind of I kind of stopped uh, when I moved to the US, basically. Right. Because yeah. it was very hard to follow in the US, um, right. but yeah, I, uh, I but I'm, and at the end of the day, I'm not a car guy, which was kind of weird when you think about it. You know, I was watching Formula One, but uh, you know, the, the McLaren or the uh, the Ferraris was the big thing when I was a kid, right? It was McLaren versus Ferrari, and that was it for me. I wasn't I would recognize a, a five twelve BB, if I, you know, if I saw one in the street, but it wasn't a big deal to me in cars. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I kind of wanted to get back on the watch topic. What? Sure. How would you describe your journey within the within watches? Like both with the pieces themselves but also the industry. Like how do you describe it? So, uh let's start with the watches. Um you know, I think I think watches I I I'm kind of somewhat different than most people is I'm very early, uh, after three or four years of collecting, everybody starts by buying anything they like, you know, and then all of right. a sudden they realize that A, they don't have an infinite amount of money and B, they start to get more into certain watches, you know, like some people would go into brands like Patek or Rolex or Cartier or whatever, or Independence, and, and a lot of others would be, you know, going into a theme, uh, military watches, sport watches. And I will get very 
very much into something, but just for two or three years. And then I would move on to something else. Mm. And it could be very eclectic. And I have a very eclectic collection and I stay very open-minded and very eclectic. I, I don't like brands. I actually dislike brands. I like watches. Okay. And, and, and in certain ways, that kind of left me with the sense that in terms of a journey, my, I, like it, I like it all. You know, if you look at my Instagram, it can be a thousand dollar watch to a hundred thousand dollar watch. I yeah. I don't really. I, there's no discrimination here. No on price. No on what kind of watch or what brand. If I like it, I'll buy it. If I can afford it, you know? Yeah. And if you talk, if if it makes if it makes me feel something about it, you know, I will buy it. Um, and that's still the same way. And I have never evolved really much as a collector. Uh, I my knowledge has. Um, I've been very lucky that collecting like this has given me tremendous knowledge because uh, I've basically seen all of them. Yeah. Uh, and as, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, you know, you know a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything. I'm yeah. the same with watches. I don't know much, but I know a little bit of everything. You know, I can I can definitely hold a conversation with a with a Jean collector as I can hold a conversation with a, a military watch collector or a Rolex collector. I'm I'm not. Um, I'm not discriminating, and I, I, I'm very open-minded. I'm staying like I like to stay like that. I never want to specialize. Can Can I interrupt you for two seconds because I have a dilemma on my hands, and I want your opinion. So, very much like you, I'm kind of brand agnostic. Even though I have like I have several Rolex, I have several IWC. IWC has always been like my first love. Like I fell in love with their chronograph, right, and um. But now, like throughout my journey, I, I don't know, started paying attention somewhere around 2007. So call me 15 years into this thing. Um, been buying, collecting, selling occasionally. Um, I am infatuated with the 1815 chronograph from Along and Sona. I don't know, should I sell several pieces to buy one watch or should I keep the pieces that I've bought because I do love them? Um, like where do you stand on kind of like trying to buy your grail watch, even though independently, like I probably can't afford that watch, but if I sell six of them, I can, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I always recommend people to go for the big one. Yeah. Um, to go for the big, always. Interesting. Yeah, because um, I, I, from experience with collectors, I, I think that if they don't go for the big one, they're going to buy the substitution to the big one, you know? Sure. Like, you see you see those guys, they, they, they want that, you know, they want that expensive Patek, and they, they don't want to do the jump, and they end up buying five watches that look exactly like the watch they want. Right. <laughs> and, and at the end of the day, they... You look at the collection and like, but they all look the same. But and then you talk to them and they're like, "Oh, I really like that watch." And it makes sense, you know. You're like, "Okay, if you like chronographs and finding one chronograph and you have five of them, and you tell me you like an 1815 chronograph from Lange, it makes sense." Is it a black dial or the white dial that you want? I like the, I like the long, I like the black one, personally. Of course, because you like them. You see, yeah, fair, it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, put it this way, IWC designed that watch, by the way. You know that, right? I actually did not know that. Yeah. Um, so uh, the first generation 1815 chronograph 
you know, Lange was, so before it was owned by Richmond, GLC and IWCs were owned by a company called Video. You know, Video that makes the, uh, um, the, the, the things for cars, the, um, um, Video is the one that makes uh, your your counters on, on cars, your um, the Mr. screens Dominic? that you have on it. Oh, Thank oh, you. oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, so they, they were making this. They were they were owned by a big company, a big huge company that was bought by um, Vodafone. You know Vodafone in the UK, yeah, of course. Which yeah, basically the so Vodafone bought video. Uh, because video had something to do with Vodafone. I don't remember what this is 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And out of the merger of the purchase, they spin off GLC and AWC and Nange to Richmond, who bought the whole thing for 1.2 billion. That was in the year 2000. But originally, there was this guy called Gunther Blumlein, and he was the CEO of GLC and the CEO of AWC. Right. And, um, the last remaining Lange came to see him and said, please help me. I want to do, I want to relaunch my brand. So Gunther Brunheim used IWC engineers to go because they spoke German, right? They're in Schaffhausen. Right. So they went to uh, La Chute and they started the company. They started designing the watches, making the movement, designing the movement. It was mostly Swiss German guys in Germany from IWC that kind of started the whole language. Okay, so that's what you mean by is designed by IWC. Got it. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, no question. They were yeah. they were employees of IWC. They were not employees of Lange at the beginning, beginning. Right. And 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 those guys designed um, the, the watches for the first five years. So the, the brand was launching. They started what brand in ninety two. The brand was launching in nineteen ninety. But the brand was launching ninety four. And you had the Lange one, the Saxonia, the Lange Cabaret. And the datograph that came a little later, and with the datograph came the 1815. I mean, can you imagine doing that today? Like, those are such heavy hitter watches to know that that's what you started with. It's like, yeah, and, and I forgot the most important one, the Paul Mary Tourbillon, of course. Uh, that was one of the first watches, that was one of the first four watches. It's like if McLaren started their brand with the F1, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, wait, what. <laughs> Back then, you had to, you know. Back then, the the brands with a historical perspective was so important. Nobody wanted to buy independence. Nobody wanted to buy. Um, if you want to do a big splash, you needed to have big splash watches. Mm-hmm. And here, it was kind of a brand that existed that had a very high end. They couldn't start without doing a big splash. Yeah. When they did, I mean, when the datograph came, it was a huge thing. And the eighteen fifteen is kind of a baby datograph. To me, it's right. a baby datograph. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I would recommend to buy this. I mean, sell the watches and buy this. And even, I mean, if you sell stuff that you know you can get again, this it's, it's a no-brainer. Well, so that's the Don't thing. Sell stuff. That, yeah, some of the stuff I can buy again, and some of it I can't. <laughs> so sell <laughs> the stuff you can. Well, sell sell the stuff you can and um, get again, and keep the one you can't, and you know, try to come up with the money. Right, yeah, exactly. To buy the eighteen fifteen, right. but I would I always recommend people to go and go after the watch they really want because they will, for years they will substitute and buy watches that look like the watch they want, really wanted. Right, and, and yeah, you can sure. see the pattern really well after a while. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Now at this point, I have three watches that almost look identical. That, <laughs> but it's like one's a blue dial, one's a black dial, 
and one's like a stainless case, the other one's serotanium. So it's like, even though side by side, like they, they all look different. So, so they're all uh, doper chronographs? Well, no. So I've got the tribute to 3705, which is the serotanium one. You know, the 3705 is a watch that I've bought and sold maybe. I think it's the second the watch that the second watch that I've bought and sold the most, the 3705. I've owned that watch in my collection maybe at least seven times or eight times. It's crazy. I didn't realize you owned it that many times because you and I, when we met in New York for the first time last October, yeah. I we we were talking about the 3705. Yeah. Because I was like, wait, didn't you sell it to Ben? And you were like, how did you know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, so I still went to Ben. But yeah. I've sold uh, since then. I think I had I bought, I bought another one that I had for a year or two. And then I sold it to Eric who really wanted it. Oh, funny. Yeah. And, I, and before Ben, I bought it at least four or five times. So, okay. So you can see my dilemma. Because the watch, even though it's not the original, it's the tribute. To me, I mean, it's like so good looking. It's perfect. Yeah, but you'll be able to buy it again. When I say you cannot buy it again, it's like PS Unique or stuff that I make. Oh, right, 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 right. I'll give you an example. uh, Speaking about IWC, I have in my collection um, the the Chronograph Perpetual from Vempe Anniversary. I don't know if you know that that, that watch. I mean, I know Wimpy, but I don't know that watch. Okay, so... Uh, if you go on my Instagram, you see it maybe three or four years ago, but I still have it. Um, maybe I put it this weekend, actually. Okay. Yeah, you know what? I put it this weekend, so you can see it. Okay. It's cool. um, it's um, it's a chronograph that was uh, perpetual calendar. So this is way before uh, like uh, IWC make a perpetual calendar. Mm. It was uh, Vampe 125th anniversary. Wow. And they made this watch in a limited edition of 50 pieces for the uh, for the company. And it's a perpetual calendar uh, chronograph, kind of like a Patek. Um, and they made that in 2002. And they made 50 of those. Wow. So it's the old figure uh, look, you know, with the straight hands. And, um, uh, and I, I owned that watch in 2002. And, um, and I sold it. And I really... I really missed it, missed it. And then I, I got it back. Like it took me 15 years to find it again. Oh, wow. So, it, so this isn't the big pilot you're talking about. This is something separate. No, 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 no. It's not. It's a figure. It's a perpetual right. figure. Right. Black dial with a, um, I, I will, um, I, I will, I will write this weekend. You'll see okay. it this weekend. Cool. I think I, think I have it at home. I, maybe not. Maybe I'm saying you'll see it this weekend and I don't have it. But yeah, I, I mean, I have it, but maybe not at home. I, I find it. Do you still have your Mark 11? Uh, yes. Yeah, that one is a really good one. Yeah. So you, you have to understand the way I collect is I get, I will get into something, right? And I will get really into it like crazy. I will, you know, buy a Mark 11 and then buy all the Marks. At one point I had Mark 9, Mark 10, Mark 11, Mark 12. And, you know, um, and I will get into all the military watches. And then maybe I get tired of the whole thing and I sell them. Mm. And then I realized that, oh, I missed that watch and I would buy it again. And then I would try to upgrade, you know. Um, so if I feel watch that I prefer, if, if I don't have an emotional attachment to the specific watch, a souvenir high bought it, like if it was just transactional, uh, if I found a better one, I would sell it, that one to get a new one. But the Mark 11 that I have, um, it's kind of interesting because it has, um, it's, um, 
he has South African markings and British markings. And um, when it was offered to me, I was like, this is a fake because South Africa was not in the Commonwealth. Mm. Um, and, you know, for example, the, the IWC Mark 11, the Australian had it, and uh, they, were in the common, they were in the Commonwealth. So, but when I saw the South African, I was like, oh, this guy knows nothing about history. South Africa was not in the Commonwealth. But actually, I'm wrong. South Africa was in the Commonwealth, but for a short period of time. Um, and then they, they left the Commonwealth in 1959. And that IWC was sold maybe a few days or weeks before they left the Commonwealth. So I'm very proud of that one. I'm not going to sell that one. It's, I don't wear it often, but I really like it uh, because of that. Because I really thought it was a fake when I got it. It comes with everything. You know, it has the extract and everything. So I know wow. it's, it's kosher, but yeah. That's super cool. Yeah, I mean, the Mark 11 is obviously timeless. And I mean, speaking of Ben and IWC and all these things, like I think the Houdinki limited edition IWC that they did was incredible. You mean the serotonin one? The I think it was what it was in the Max Seventeen with no date, right? Yeah, that was yeah. a great watch. I agree. Yeah, yeah, it was a great watch. Um, they um, yeah they did a good job because he looks very close to a modern Mark Eleven, certainly. Right, right. Um, with with that you know the dark case, yeah, it's it's a good one. I agree. Uh, I think it might be the 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 third best um, release. <laughs> Yeah. What's number two? Um, number two is uh, the um, Vacheron. Oh, okay. Oh, you're talking about of the limited editions. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought you were thinking of Pilots White, IWC Mark. I, th- I thought you were saying, okay. Uh, IWC Mark, I definitely think the Mark 11 is the best one that was right. ever made. Right. Um, I think the Mark 12 is kind of a cool watch. You know, the Mark 12 is kind of... Um, nobody looks at it, but I have one of few Mark 12, and I have to admit, if, if the size doesn't bother you, it's it's kind of a cool watch. Yeah. The problem is the 889 movement is kind of a crappy movement, doesn't keep uh, very well power reserve. But um, in terms of the watch, the date can bother you, but for me, it didn't bother me so much. I think it's kind of a cool watch. I do this. I say Mark 11, Mark, Mark 9, Mark 12. And maybe the Onzinki, so maybe the fourth it would be in that case. Okay, I see. Oh yeah, when you were talking limited editions though, got that Vacheron. I think that that's my favorite corn devache like ever. And I've actually told Ben that, and Ben's just like, "Oh my god, thanks so much" or whatever. Because like every time he posts that watch, I like, I almost feel such a knee jerk reaction that I have to com- com- like compliment him on it. It's just so beautiful. It's perfect shade of gray. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a cool watch. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. So what's number one then? Since you were talking about limited editions, to me, uh, from the band, uh, from the from stuff, yeah. I, I like uh, my favorite is the Omega. Ah, okay. So the tenth anniversary, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah, that's a good one. Um, unfortunately, I was at that gala like that weekend. That was such a fun weekend. Ah, cool. Yeah, that was really cool. One again. Speaking of Hodinka, what do you have on your wrist? It looks like is it sixteen seventy five? Exactly. Yeah. And that was from your talking watches episode, right? Is it the That's same correct. one? Yeah. Yeah, it is the same one. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. uh, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, sixteen seventy five. It's funny. Um, I wasn't wearing this this morning. Um, I was wearing one of my watches. I was wearing. Um, I did. A, I have the prototype of. Um, a watch that I've released, but I haven't 
made yet. I mean, actually, the first few ones are going to be delivered next month, but it's the uh, the Habring Perpetual Calendar Chronograph Monopusher. Oh, love Habring. So I was wearing that today, but they needed it for a photo shoot, and, uh, and I had this in my office, so I put that on. Yeah. Oh, super cool. Well, let's talk about Messina Lab then. Mm-hmm. What was what was the genesis? So the genesis was, uh, you know, I was running Time Zone for many years, and yeah. um, in 2015 it was the 20th anniversary of Time Zone, and uh, we thought that it'd be a great idea to Time Zone. Time Zone um, at the beginning was at the beginning of Time Zone. They were it was owned by this guy called Richard Page. And Richard had a watch store in San Francisco, and he did a couple of limited editions um, with Minerva, with uh, Dubé Shalom brand, with brands that actually no longer exist, really. And he um, and he had quite a success with it, but then nobody did it after him. So mm-hmm. for the 20th anniversary, I was like, oh, I do, you know, I do something like that. And we did the watch with Habring. I did a chronograph, uh, Mono Pusher. Uh, with a crown, crown activated, and um, really enjoyed doing it. We sold them pretty fast, and we did 20 of them. So um, some people emailed me and said, oh, you know, I wish I could buy the watch, but it was 8000 or $9,000 at the time, maybe 10 years ago. That's a lot of money for me. Sure. You know, if she did if she did something else with Habring, that would be cheaper. So I talked to Richard Habring, and we thought that we could do another one um, with the dead second. So the Following year with Time Zone again, I did the 21st anniversary watch, which was like, I think, five grand. And we did uh, 21 watches, and that sold really fast. Oh, cool. So I had this idea. I really enjoyed designing them with Richard. So I started thinking about doing, uh, you know, a couple of limited editions every year. And really started with just doing a couple, like one or two, and, you know, put a website up and just do that. So... Um, I thought of it, and then in 2018, I launched my first watch. We did well, and then 2019. So we did well, but I launched my first watch without time zone. So I thought that I would do 50 watches, and it take me a year to sell all of them. Okay. And then in 2019, I, you know, and I have time to think of another watch for 2019. Right. The problem is when I launched in 2018, we launched a, a week before Thanksgiving. I sold all 50 watches in five hours. No way. I was, yeah, yeah. So I was, it was, uh, it was fun. It was exciting. But at the same time, I was like, shit, I have nothing for 2019. <laughs> yeah. So, because <laughs> like the turnaround time takes like what, you know, six months to 18 months sometimes. Yeah. So at the time for Hadrain, we did 50 watches and I was delivering uh, five to seven watches a month. Right. But everybody had bought the watch and I didn't, we didn't think that no, everybody was going to buy, you know, all 50. But, how 50 watches were selling five hours. So then it was a hard-wing job to deliver the watch and me to, you know, to get them to the clients. But sure. I, I, you know, I thought that I couldn't put another watch up until all those watches were sold. So I was like, now I had nothing on the website. So 2019, I was like, okay, I'm not going to release anything, but I'm going to prepare 2020. And uh, 2020, we did a few releases. And the first one was with Unimatic. Uh, I did the watch with a brown dial. Yeah. That was a second Messina Lab. And um, that was a March 3rd, 2020. So it was 10 days before we went to COVID. Yep. And we did 100 of those. And I was sure that I was not going to sell all of them. I was like, oh, 100 watches, you know. Right. At least this is going to last uh, a long time. So I had, a, at the time, a, a WeCommerce, you know, website. 
and my WooCommerce went down uh, <laughs> 30 seconds into it. It was like crazy. Um, and I sold all watches, I think, in the like a minute. It was like all gone. Wow. And so that was the first cinematic. And, um, and then I had, um, and then I had another two or three more releases that year. And uh, I worked, I was working on 21. And then I had the Ming. I don't know if you remember the Ming. Yeah, the brand. The Ming was well. a big deal because we got hacked. And I mean, hacked, I don't know, we don't know. I don't know. Still today, we think, you know, we're a victim of uh, uh, boats and stuff like that. But, uh, uh, and then the watch wasn't working properly, it had an issue with the hand. Um, and uh, then since then, I think we've done over 30 different models, 30 or 35 different models. Okay, so do you shoot for a particular number of collaborations per year, or do you just kind of play it by no. year? Okay. No, no, no. First of all, um, you have a lot of issues with the brands. You know, they can be delayed. Uh, COVID has made things. COVID, COVID was a very interesting thing. COVID was... Um, cocaine to my company and cocaine to the rest of the industry. You know, all of nice. a sudden we all got a big shot of coke, you know, nostrils. Um, and um, so what happened when you have coke is you work much more, you, you feel much more active, but all of a sudden you feel very tired and you may need another shot. And this shot is not going to happen again. Right. So I, I think to a certain extent, uh, a lot of people in the industry are still under the influence of the coke. Because I had never sniffed coke before, <laughs> and and they still think that you know forever things are going to increase twenty percent, thirty or fifty or hundred percent every year. But the truth is that things are going to slow down. Um, the thing is, you have to manage it. So we look at it and be like, with the brands, and we look at it and we say, look, we want to make things the right way for the customer and try to to expand, you know, one or two new brands a year, but not, you know. So we have the strategy is not to present too many watches at the same time and yeah. to try to make you know a good product first. That, that's kind of the idea, rather than uh, start, you know doing left and right different projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, you obviously have an affinity for brown. Why is that? Because um, I'm very much into the webby sabi thing, you know, from the Japanese, um, mm -hmm. and um, and. Like the vintage, uh, there's this vintage influence that I have into into watches, and and I think that uh, modern collectors and young collectors, if there's a brand watch, a vintage brand watch, usually it's very expensive now. They cannot really afford it. So that was the idea with the Unimatic. Uh, you know, we had those watch made by hand. You know, I mean, they're very expensive, and, um, they're kind of unique, and um, wow. we um, and a lot of people kind of like them. So we did the. Uh, the geometer also with the brown dial, which was very successful. And then I did the Matitiso um, also with the brown dial, and yeah. that was also very successful. And I think the reason is because it looks cool. I think I, I I tried to find a different tone of brown every time and still make it kind of vintage without being too too stupid, you know, too fake. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a lot. I, I want to bring people to vintage in certain ways without having to deal with all the issues that vintage can sure yeah well something i remember you said in your talking watches episode because you said that brands always do their best work when they're struggling but True. you're creating designs and stuff now but you're not struggling <laughs> but just, so so how do you explain this <laughs> because i got you know i think 
and I'm very conscious about it. I think that um, these are the easy days. You know, I've been around 30 years doing this stuff. I mean, at least being around watchers, and these right. are easy days. You know, yeah. um, I, I, I think that I'm very conscious that uh, it's not going to remain that easy. I think I think people are going to want more sophisticated and you know much more. Uh, interesting things as we progress and they're going to learn more because there's a lot of new people in the study collecting and they're going to get much more sophisticated and much more demanding. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that when it's going to be hard for me, maybe when my best work will come out, you know, maybe, maybe it's not now, but also I'm five years old, you know, I'm not like Bachelor Constantine that is over 250 years old or whatever they are, but right. that is over 175 years old. Um, so they, they have the length where you can see that they did fantastic in the 30s when the shit was hitting the fan with the, the Great Depression, but, or even in 2008, you know, when it was tough with the, with the economy. So in my case, I'm five years old, you know, it's right. maybe I'd blow up in the next five years, right. you know, it's, <laughs> um, or maybe I'd be dead in five years. So it's, it's kind of, um, you, you kind of go and try to do your best every day, but I think. I might be doing my best. Maybe I'm, you know, I prophesized about the truth, but even for my case, you know, you, I try to do a good job every time. Every watch I do, I try to be very detail oriented and, and bring whatever I can from the collab or even my product. Right. But, but yeah, I do believe the brands are doing better when they're really not doing well and they do a much better product. How do you how do you choose what to do next for for Messina Lab? Like, do you think of a design first, or do you think of a brand that you want to collaborate with first, or is it sort of just kind of one and the same? Like, I'm craving. Like, how do you decide what to do next? It's super easy. I it's, it's like buying a watch. It's exactly the same process. So you want to buy a watch, and you. You fell in love with the watch, and you know, like you want to buy 1815 chronograph from and that's what you want, right? So, I my process is very similar. Like, I want to watch from XYZ brand, and uh, but I see, I look at the catalog and I see something I really like, but eh, there's little details down there that would change, or um, and that's the high starts. So, I will go to the brand and I pitch it, hey, I want to buy this brand watch from you guys, but can you do this and that for me? And you know, I have uh, 50, 120 friends of mine that want to do the same thing. So that's basically the pitch. Um, the pitch is at which I want. It's not, it has, I'm not thinking about anybody else. When I went to Unimatic and I did a brand that, I wanted that watch for myself. I don't want that watch for anybody else. Same thing with the uh, Habring or anybody. It's of Ming, for example, it was really a watch I want for myself. Um, and, and that's the way it starts. I, I don't have, uh, I, I see a watch that I like and I go to the brand and I please do it for me. I have the exact same approach when it comes to Standard H and how I produce my products. It's always what I want next, <laughs> which is sort of selfish. But I mean, that was the genesis of my brand all along is that like, you know, I'm, I'm customer number one, you know. and You, you have to. I mean, if, if you don't like your own product, how can you sell it? Right. I mean... <laughs> It, I, I found it. I, I found it. If you're not your first client, I, I remember uh, when I, you know, I kind of became a watch dealer. And I'm, I'm going to do a drug reference. And yeah, right. <laughs> this, this guy's a drug dealer. Um, I remember when I started, you know, dealing a little bit into watches, and one dealer to me, William, you'd never be a good watch guy and watch dealer because you fall in love with the merchandise. 
And drug dealers are funny enough to mention I is a drug addict. Right. And that's what I am. I'm a watch addict. You know, I'm I'm falling in love with a merchandise and I cannot sell you something that I love so much that I don't want to sell. So I had to make more than one in order for me to show you why I love that watch so much. Mm-hmm. Why I designed it that way. And that's exactly what I do. And I yeah. think that anybody who does anything in retail or in, you know, accessories or clothing, you have to like what you're doing and be your first customer. Or, or then it's a guessing game. Oh, I'm going to do a uh, I mean, I, I found it very hard <clears throat> and very hard for what designers that do stuff for women, for example. You know, uh, like Carl Lagerfeld, I'm like, why wow, this guy was really a genius because he can't find and have the taste and, you know, to, to, to make something that he's never going to wear, his dress. And he's like, I'm incapable of doing this. Right. Uh, I might be able to what, make a watch for my wife one day and say, hey, you have know, one for my wife, maybe 20 people will like it. But right now, I'm more like, I did this watch for myself. You guys right. like it? Hey, you don't like it? Well, I still have my prototype and I'm happy with it. Yeah, totally. It really, it really works that way. Do you think you'll ever get back into brick and mortar from a business standpoint? No, I think that I may do um, I may do little lounges and uh, pop-up stores and stuff like this. But having retail stores, I, I found it very cumbersome in the watch world. You know, it's the security issue, the uh, mm. the time wasters. You know, I, um, I, I, I I don't think I'm my audience. I think is more sophisticated than the average guy. You know, the average watch guy. The guy who buys for me is the guy who you know about watches most of the time. Obviously, to, to discover me, you need to know already about watches, right? And that's, yeah. So most of my guys that buy for me are somewhat sophisticated clients. So they don't need really the approach of, uh, hey, stay here and sit down and let me tell you for an hour why to buy this watch. Yeah, they don't need an education. No, they yeah. don't. Um, yeah. You know, you, you, you can send them an email and they cannot get it. And the ones that don't get it, don't buy it, you know. Yeah. Um, they're, they're just a very small batch. I don't want to do big batches. I'm interested in, like, you know, it's like uh, home cooking. It has to remain very real and, and natural. There's no, um, there's no factory here. You know, it's, it's right. all done the old-fashioned way. And here, I make it 10, 20, 50. And the, the most that we do is maybe 500, and that would be a unimatic. Right, right. But more than that, it'd be, I'm not very interested in having, you know, a thousand of a watch made. It's, it's not really me. You don't want any preservatives. <laughs> no, I don't want any preservatives. <laughs> Unless it's aesthetic, right? It's just timeless. Exactly. Right. I mean, I, 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 I admire a lot of those micro brands that can sell, you know, a thousand watches. I think it's great, but it's, it's not really me. You know, I, I want to do small batches. Is there a brand you haven't worked with yet that you're dying to? Tons, tons. Yeah. Um, I mean, with the micros, there's tons of guys that would love to work. Um, and um, you know, in order to work with people, there's two things you need to have the same approach to the to what what you want to do. Uh, you, and you need to be in a situation where you can talk to each other. You know, you mm-hmm. cannot do. You need to like them. They need to like you. Um, so in my case, it's very hard. 
for them to like me. So you know, it's it's uh, um, it's um, it's kind of difficult to approach them. But more seriously, I this time, so the the issue I have is I like to work with my friends and I like to work with people that work with believing at the beginning. And you know, sometimes we feel the story is not finished or that we can learn from each other and do cool stuff. I'm talking yeah. really you know, right. or hard drink, which has been around for so long with me and we try to do stuff all the time. And then you have other guys that, you know, I may have maybe only one watch and then we move on to something else. But by now we have about 18 projects wow. going on. And I would say that out of the 18, 20%, maybe 25% will die, you know, would not happen. That's basically the rate. Interesting. Usually for, for different reasons, you know, usually because of, the technique that was we want to use not working. Sometimes our idea was used by somebody else that came out in the market with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there can be different reasons, or they're too busy, or they didn't have the manpower to do it. But so let's say on 20 projects, um, I will make 13, 14 projects, you know, 15. Well, speaking of manpower, how many people do you employ? Like, how big is Messina Lab? So it's very small. Uh, we're four. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's just four people. I have uh, one person who does basically CRM, one person who does mostly um, um, packing and uh, things like this, and sure. then I have one person who is basically my right-hand man who is uh, my director of branding, so he does everything that is aesthetic on my side, you know, uh, all the... Um, on the website, everything has to do with marketing, social media, pictures, and all that. That's all my branding. Cool. And that is me. And I, I, I mostly focus on two things, the finance aspect of it. Because we finance everything we make. Right. And um, and I do work to see the design um, and stuff like that. We, we may add a fifth person that's going to do the physical designing for us. Right now, I subcontract that. But we're getting to the stage where I'm going to need somebody to be full-time and uh, design watches with me. Well, I hear IWC designs pretty cool-looking watches. <laughs> I don't know if IWC needs me. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I was kidding. But um, they, uh, you know, IWC um, is one of my favorite brands from Richmond. Definitely, um, uh, I think... Um, one of the best ones that they uh, that that big conglomerate has. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So you have bought watches, you've sold watches, you've owned just like some of just the coolest stuff. What is the watch you've never bought, never owned, but maybe have experienced? Because I mean, you've probably experienced literally everything at this point. But what have you not owned that you want to own? Is there is there such a watch out there? Yeah, I've never owned a twenty four ninety nine. Oh, okay. I take the picture of Canada Chronograph. Yeah. And um or fifteen eighteen for that matter. I've never owned either of those watch. And that's the watch I've owned um I've owned all the modern ones, you know, thirty nine seventy, fifty two seventy, fifty nine seventy, all of those and I've owned uh, five thousand fours the split. But the twenty four ninety nine and the fifteen eighteen I've never owned. Um very early in my collecting career, I remember this. A friend of mine told me he had he had exactly the same experience. So I always talk about this. 
I remember it was an auction that was maybe 25 years ago, and there was a 24.99 that went for maybe 120, 130 grand. And at the time, I, at the time, I couldn't afford it, and I saw this, and I was, and we knew it was cheap, though. And and I was like, ah, this is the last time I'm going to be close to be able to afford it, you know. And those watches are gone now, and kind of in a, you know, and uh, they're not that affordable, possibly. <laughs> and um, this is the two watches that I've not owned, that I wish I've owned. But who knows, you know? Um, maybe one day I'll sell like you, like I'm telling you to do. I said, yeah, I was just collection. about to. I was about to suggest the same. <laughs> uh, but actually, if you look at my watch collection, you think that that's exactly what I was aiming at. Because you have similar looking stuff. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I've owned a lot of those modern version of it. Um, uh-huh. But also the um, the fact that you see a lot of chronograph and you see a lot of perpetual calendars with me. That's kind of the two things I like. I'm not, a, I'm not at all um, um, a mini repeater guy. I'm not really into mm-hmm. mini repeaters. Uh, I love tourbillons. I love, uh, I love perpetual calendars, really. And the chronographs are my favorite. I think chronograph is the best complication. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I'm a big chronograph guy. Um, I think maybe the 3970 is my favorite. So a 3970, maybe because I'm a big guy, um, a 36 millimeter on my wrist, it's a so little bit too, like... Do da- dainty? It's too, yeah, it's kind of like fat and small, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of looks weird on my wrist. Um, I've actually never tried one on, so I, I don't know. Uh, so <laughs> I, I tell you, I've owned a few. It's, it's a watch that I love to have with my safe, but I never really enjoy wearing. Interesting. Um, yeah. Did you like the 5970 better? Oh, yeah. yeah. I think 5970 is the best Patek that was made in the last 40 years that, I mean, everybody when that came out said it was the best ever. Yeah, fifty-nine seventy, platinum, white, uh, white gold. Those two guys, the best, really like top watch. Really, the fifty-nine seventy is great watch. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, William, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. This is this was a lot of fun. Um, Wes, all good. It was a thank you for having me in the show. It was a. It was a pleasure to uh, to be around and yeah. chat with you for now. Yeah, my my pleasure. And um, I'm supposed to go to New York in May, so if you're around, would love to catch up, grab some food or coffee or something. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Send me a, send me an email. For sure, we'll do. Yeah. Okay, buddy. Well, thank you so much. And um, you know, uh, well, oh, before we go, we got to talk about JMM for two seconds. We both hit it off over Jacques Marie Mage. That's right. That's okay. So we hit it off on because I called you out on your sunglasses. <laughs> That's so right, what have you bought a pair recently? Because we're collectors, you know, at the end of the day, you and I. Right. So JMM, I have I have these ones, and these are the Eve. Okay. I have uh, the Molino fifty five. I'm a Molino guy. Yeah. Uh, so I have a Molino 55. I have, actually, I have two pairs of Molino 55. And then I have a Torino. <laughs> and I think I have two Torinos. That's it. Two, I, have, I think I have, 
three Torinos? Three it's Torinos, one Enzo, yeah, two Molinos. Yeah. I also I have, I have six pairs. Yeah, it's 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 a problem. <laughs> you know, you know, it's kind of funny uh, that you mentioned uh, him because I haven't thought about him in a while. Uh, I wear his glasses every day, but yeah, I don't know if you ever met him. I have never met met him, but I read a lot about him. He's okay. uh, so he's a French guy, you know, Jacques Marie Mage. Uh, his real name is Jérôme Mage. And um, he um, is a Napoleon buff. He's a huge Napoleon buff. Actually, his early models have um, the name of Napoleon battles. That's how I discovered him. Really? Like the Marlin, yes. It's really bizarre. And uh, so he's very much like me. And, um, and he does watches in small batch, limited edition. Uh, he does a lot of collabs. Yeah. And I really look up to him. I think he's really doing great job. Very high quality stuff. You don't really see that it's quality, but when you know your glasses, yeah. you know it's quality. Yeah. Uh, you know what you're paying for. You know, you may say, Oh god, you can get the same thing for half the price. But when you see the glass, when you touch them, when you wear them, you know. And he um and he has a watchman. Or he was involved with a watchman called March L A B. I don't know if you ever heard of that brand. Maybe. March, M-A-R-C-H, L-A for Los Angeles, dot B, and the B is for Biarritz, uh, surf city in the, right. uh, on the, right, the west, west coast, coast of, of France. France. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 north of Spain. So, yeah, he wow. was involved with them. I don't know if he owned a piece of it or if he was a designer there, but he's also a watch guy. And he's very into something I like, too, the West. He loves Wyoming. yes. yes. And uh, and I love this too. It's kind of like this Americana things that we Europeans have. Uh, I don't know some kind of uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's why I moved to America to be a cowboy. You know, it's kind of like <laughs> this idea that you have. Um, I just love his blend of you know mid-century modern, but he's also got the Western thing, like you're saying. It's almost kind of southwestern, even sort of New Mexico, you know, Native American. And all the details are well done. The construction is great. And the design have something very classic about them. Yeah. Very well done. Yeah. yeah. I just, I mean, 10 millimeters of acetate, it's just that weight. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. It's so good. It's like a watch, you know? You pick up the watch for the first time, you're like, oh my God, is this heavy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very similar. The first yeah. time I touched a pair of GMM, I was like, hooked. Yeah. I knew Same. right away. It was, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, William. Well, cool. Thanks yeah. again. I forgot that. Uh, this is, yeah, this is funny. All right, great. Well, uh, well, I hope to see you see soon. See you soon, Wes. Okay, thank Thanks you. Thanks for this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Bye-bye. This wraps up this episode of the Standard Age Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.